That's the point. Guessing counts. The general rule... The general rule on any extra credit is if the class is ambitious, guess King Lear. If the class is not that ambitious, guess um, Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet. So I see what you guys think of this class. Yeah, I know. I'm just giving you a general rule. It's not a rule without exceptions. It's a general rule, not an unswerving rule. Those are important distinctions. Um, all right. Um, what? You also had a quote from Hamlet, though. Yeah, that's what he's pointing out. Oh, okay. That's why I'm saying it's a general, not, but not an unswerving rule. Yeah, and we've, we've grown more ambitious as we've gone up the mountain of purgatory and towards the heaven of heavens. The climb's supposed to get easier. <laughs> <laughs> easier because of all our experience. Hasn't it gotten easier? Of course it has. Um... Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about. I just want to. Um, we can't do anything like Justice to the Paradiso. Also, it's not your favorite. Uh, one one time, maybe it will be. Eventually, it will be. I hope. Um, I don't know. But go to. I don't. I. Given that um, I have different uh, page numbers, I'll just tell you where. Go to Paradiso. Um, Eleven. Um, um, uh, 43. Um, just trying to think how much of this we actually have to do. Um, Yeah. Um, so this is Aquinas um, telling us about um, a saint. Um, he's actually telling us about two saints, uh, Francis and Bernard. He says, start, let's start at line 40. I shall speak of one. Since praising one, whichever one we choose, is to speak of both, for they labor to a single end. Um, one of many places where you have that combination of two and one. Later, that combination will be the combination of three and one in um, the three final circles of light interpenetrating and circling each other that Dante sees at the end of Paradiso. Um, the second circle having a human face because it is... Jesus. Jesus. Um, the human face divine, as Milton... Um, says of the human face. Um, I shall speak of one since praising one, whichever one we choose is to speak of both, for they labor to a single end. Between the tapino and the waters that descend down from the hilltop chosen by the blessed, blessed, why did they say blessed, Ubaldo, there hangs a fertile slope from a high peak that makes Perugia feel both heat and cold at Porta Sole, while behind its other flank, Nocera and Gualdo mourn beneath their heavy yoke. From this slope, where it interrupts its steep descent, the sun rose on the world, as from the Ganges, our sun sometimes does. So that sun who rose on the world is the saint. Therefore, let anyone who would speak of this place not say Askesi, which would come up short, but call it Orient to sound its proper worth. 
Um, so don't call it um, Askesi, call it Orient itself, because it's the east. It's the place of the rising of the sun, um, that sun being um, St. Francis. Not much time as yet had passed when he first had not much time as yet had passed when he first lent his comfort to the earth by the greatness of his virtuous power. For still a youth, he fought against his father's wish for the favor of a lady to whom, as to death, no one unlocks the door with gladness. So he was, um, he wanted the favor of a lady that no one um, is happy to see come into their house. Um, so his father says, You're, you, you are interested in the wrong woman. Um, it's as though you were interested in death. Um, I'm going to lock the door to this person. Um, but he fights against his father's wish in order to um, get the favor of this lady. And before his spiritual court et coram patre, he joined himself to her and from then on each passing day he loved her more so that is against his father's heart um, he married this lady um, and loved her more every day she bereft of her first husband so she's not only um, not someone that his father would want him to marry but it turns out that um, he's her second husband she's already been married um, this lady has she bereft of her first husband she's a widow a little bit like who in Hamlet? Hamlet's mother. Yes, Gertrude. Um, Gertrude is named in Hamlet, just so you'd learn a little bit. Uh, um, Claudius the king never is named. We only know he's named Claudius from the Dramatis Personae. Um, isn't that interesting? Um, she, bereft of her first husband, scorned and unknown 1,100 years and more. So, she's not the kind of person you want your son to marry. Plus, she turns out to be a widow. Plus, she's a little old. She's 1,100 years old. She's been a widow for 1,100 years. Um, she, bereft of her first husband, scorned and unknown, 1,100 years and more, remained without a suitor till he came. Nor did it profit her when men heard that she stood unmoved with Amiclas, despite the voice of him, who put the whole wide world in fear, nor did it profit her when, being fiercely loyal and undaunted, while Mary stayed below, she wept with Christ upon the cross. So Mary didn't even do what she did. She wept with Christ upon the cross. But lest I make my meaning dark, let it be understood in all that I have said, that these two lovers are Francis and poverty. Their happy countenance and their harmony, their love and wonder and sweet contemplation made them a cause for holy thoughts. Um, and then we get um, a little bit to Bernard. Um, so we get a little allegory here, which is that even as a child, St. Francis of Assisi, um, against his father's wishes, devoted his father was a rich man, he devoted himself to poverty, um, to um, helping the poor and to giving away all that he had um, in order to help the poor and to continue helping <coughs> the poor. Um, and no one 
had done anything like this before for 1,100 years. The last person who had so devoted himself to the poor and had so given up everything for them was Christ. Um, so Francis is um, uh, a kind of second version of the, um, the love and self-sacrifice and embracing of poverty um, that you saw in Christ 1,100 years earlier. Um, it's a beautiful section, but one reason that I bring it up, I mentioned this before, is that if you look at that line, um, line 74 um, in the Italian, um, which is that those two lovers um, are Francis in poverty, just if you look in the um, Italian, it's Francesco e povertà, um, and that should remind you of Paolo and Francesca. That is, that this is, um, in a way, the um, right version, the good version of what Paolo and Francesca are the, are the um, damned version of. That is a love, that um, a, a devotion um, to a married woman um, that lasts beyond death. Um, that lasts even after death um, has come. Um, poverty has been married to Christ. Now she's married to Francis. Um, Francesca has been married, but now she's with Paolo. They're reversed. Francesc France Francesco, Francesca, male and female get reversed. Um, but this is still affiliation between Paradiso and Inferno. Yeah. I, could it also be a reference to um, poverty being married to, was it like plenty? In, in, in the symposium, yeah. nice. Yeah, that is that, that where does love come from? The love is the offspring of poverty and plenty. Um, so yeah, they're probably somewhere in his mind that this is, this is um, or somewhere in the history of, of, um, of imagery. Um, and of allegory and of thought, um, this may descend from that story in the symposium. Um, do you remember where the Sybil comes up, by the way, speaking of classical antecedents, of which the notes will tell you there are a lot? Do you remember where the Sybil comes up in um, Paradiso? Uh, well, okay, it's, we won't go into it now. Uh, she comes up in a simile at, at the very end in Canto 33, um, and that should remind you of the Sibyl in um, the Aeneid. Um, all right. Um, a reason to say this is just to say one final thing about um, the structure of the Divine Comedy, which is, so what we get in the Heaven of Heavens is, is this incredible rose, um, that is, uh, we've gone from um, the Inferno to Paradiso, and Paradiso itself is um, a place structured like a rose. Um, if you think of the rose, you can then think, okay, so the worm that pierces the heart of the universe, um, it's as though the entire universe now forms itself as a rose, um, which like a real rose, um, is in the, in the air, um, open to the sky, part of the um, atmosphere of light and um, 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 air, uh, 
but of course its roots are underground. And um, so the whole structure of the universe is, is, if you see it from a far enough distance, is that Satan is, a, is as underground as you can be and as high above the ground as you can be is the rose. Um, but they're connected. Um, they're connected within one universe, within one structure. Then you can also say that if you think about, we talked about um, how there's a way in which the mountain of purgatory would fit into um, as a, a kind of cone that could fit into the conical absence that is hell. Um, there's also a way in which the rose is the um, parallel structure to the structure of hell. Hell itself um, is almost like the nine levels of the inferno. Um, they could be pictured as being the rocky negatives of the petals of the rose. Um, the petals of the rose um, made of light and love um, are parodied in hell, are petrified in hell into the rocky absence, the, all, the, all the broken spaces in hell. They could almost be like a wax impression, but a rock impression of the rose, the structure of paradise and the structure of hell. Um, the circular structures of both are very similar. So you go from this huge hole, which the last thing it is is a rose, but it's, but it's the negative, the opposite of a rose in every way, this huge hole in the ground, which is hell. And then you climb a mountain, which ends in a garden. And then the garden um, is a prefiguration of the rose complete, the absolute rose that you get in the Empyrean. Um, the reason to bring up the um, Paolo and Francesca and Francesco and, and poverty connection is to say that, well, it is a little bit like plenty and poor, to say that um, once again you can see, except in the lowest part of hell where Satan himself is, um, with the parodic trinity, Satan with his three heads, as opposed to the three circles of light, which are God. Um, in the lowest part of hell is the only place where you have absolute opposition to the highest part of heaven, um, where things are as opposite as they can possibly be. Um, before, but, but higher up in hell, lower down in heaven, the opposition is not total. And so the idea that, that all of it is structured and built by love, that all of it is um, in some way or another um, an exemplification and manifestation of love. One powerful way to see that is to say the way Paolo and Francesca feel about each other and the way Francis and poverty feel about each other, um, they're not different or they're not vastly different. They're not entirely different. You can find love in hell as well. Um, and it is love that you can find in hell. And the story of, Fran of um, St. Francis in poverty um, tells us what that love would look like at its best. But it also tells us not to dismiss it even when you get the hellish version of it. Um, this actually provides a good segue into Milton. Um, I hope you read the first two books of Paradise Lost, but at any rate, I hope you at least started it. Uh, we will have that Milton quiz on the last day of class. Um, but Milton 
Um, I mentioned before, went to Italy where he met Galileo and um, met a lot of um, the uh, Italian intellectuals and um, poets and writers of the early 17th century. Not that early, in the, in the 1620s um, and 1630s. Um, and he learned Italian, of course, and read a lot of poetry in Italian. Um, and became very good friends with some Italian people. Milton has a little essay called Of Education, where, um, this is just to tell you about Milton, um, where he um, essentially thinks about the best possible way to educate people and what their what um, school children's daily um, routine should be and how they should get up at 5 in the morning and um, work on Latin for an hour. Um, then they should go out and play sports for an hour, have a quick breakfast, do their Greek composition for a couple of hours, um, take 10 minutes or so to, to um, do some fencing, um, then learn geography and history. Anyhow, he's got, he, ha he has this unbelievably um, uh, dense plan for children's schoolwork. Um, and then he says, and so um, you can, so the great thing about this is at the end of their education, they would know uh, math and logic and grammar and Latin and Greek um, and history and geography, and he names all the things, and Italian. And then he puts it in parentheses, which they can pick up at any odd hour. <laughs> that is, he doesn't give them a second in their lives. And Italian is never mentioned as something that they might learn. Um, and yet, some t somehow in their free time, they'll also pick up Italian. Um, so Milton did. Milton was good with languages. Uh, he knew Hebrew. He knew um, Greek. He knew Latin. He knew Italian. Um, he probably knew German pretty well. Um, but um, after um, and in um, well, in his youth, one of the things that he wrote was this pair of poems. Um, that I mentioned to you before called L'Allegro and Il Penseroso. Um, and um, do you, is your hand up? Yeah, but first. No, go ahead. No, because we're, we're screwing I mean, um, I was curious um, about a couple of things. How, how Milton, I think we may have discussed this earlier, how Milton tr uh, treats free will in comparison to Dante. Uh, yeah. And also um, how he, if he does it all, how he responds to Dante's claims about Adam and Eve in their stay in Eden. Um, which claims? Um, like the amount of time and the reasons for why they're kicked out. Well, okay, so he's Milton has a completely different <coughs> story to tell. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but let me just tell you about this. So that um, he wrote this pair of poems which he gave Italian names, L'Allegro and Il Penseroso. Um, L'Allegro, you who took French, what does allegresse mean in French? Do you know? Yeah, I do. I just thought okay. that. <laughs> um, it, it means ebullience. It's, uh, it's in a musical term as well as fa fast pace. Well, in music, if, if, if you're supposed to do something allegro, it means you do it quickly. That's what you're taught in music. It actually means sprightly or with gaiety, with, with, with joy and pleasure or ebullience. Um, so allegress in French means ebullience. Isn't that the same in English, though? Like, is that not a word? I'm just thinking of French. You're thinking of French. Oh, okay. um, and penseroso is where in English we get our, our word um, pensive, um, not the Harry Potter pensive. 
um, it's where we get our word pensive, which means thoughtful. Um, it has a kind of melancholy coloring to it, and um, it's if you're thoughtful, you're melancholy, or melancholy people tend to be thoughtful. But there's a kind of pleasure in thoughtfulness and in melancholy. So at any rate, um, Milton writes this pair of poems. Um, if you know the line, light fantastic, trip the light fantastic, the phrase light fantastic comes from L'Allegro. Um, it's, um, Milton has this pair of poems which are a kind of debate between a person who says um, life should be a joy and you should live um, as ebulliently as possible with as much this as possible, um, that is L'Allegro, and um, the man, Il Penseroso, the pensive one who thinks no life should be about thought and um, that melancholy actually um, there's a pleasure in melancholy, and it's partly a pleasure of depths, a pleasure of um, a sadness that gets you thinking, um, and that thinking is itself a kind of pleasure. So a stage is a debate. That, that is, these are two separate poems, um, but you can pair them up with each other. Um, the, the joyful man and the pensive, the thoughtful man. Um, and each um, talks about why his attitude towards life is the better one and why the other attitude towards life is the worse one. So L'Allegro begins by saying, hence loathed melancholy. That is, just go away, leave me alone. Um, where, um, I, I, I mean to live with mirth. That's the last line. <coughs> and mirth with thee I mean to live. Um, Il Penseroso, the thoughtful person, um, says, no, that's all very shallow. Um, what really counts is, um, is philosophy, is thinking philosophically, thinking deeply about things, um, seeing everything, including sadness, and seeing how it all comes together. In a way, the, Milton was extremely musical. He had a huge amount of musical talent, and he wrote... Um, a mask, or he wrote a couple of masks that were set to music by Henry Laws, who was one of the um, great um, English uh, composers of the early 17th century, which isn't saying that much, since there since are really only two or three great English composers, um, two who are actually English, and then one who became English. Um, Purcell and Britton are the two great English composers, and then there's Handel. Um, so, um, laws is not on that level. But at any rate, um, uh, Milton was very, very musical. He had a great deal of musical talent. And you could think of the difference between L'Allegro and Il Penseroso as the difference between a piece in a major key and a piece in a minor key, um, and an argument as to um, which music is better, music in a major or music in a minor key. Um, and at any rate, both of them are... Both L'Allegro and Il Penseroso talk about poetry and about songs and about music. And um, L'Allegro talks about the kind of music he likes is also the kind of music um, that um, um, Orpheus, the great bard, whom you will recall from Ovid, good, um, that Orpheus sang um, in hell in order to get back Eurydice. And so L'Allegro, it's a little bit surprising um, what they say, but what L'Allegro says is if he'd sung 
more music like mine, he would have quite set free, such a song as might have quite set free his half-regained Eurydice. Um, that is, um, he would have gotten her back completely instead of losing her halfway up. Um, would have quite set free his half-regained Eurydice. Il Penseroso, the melancholy one, um, talks about Eurydice almost as though she has been freed. And what he says about Orpheus and Eurydice is that he sang a song that, um, that drew a tear down Pluto's iron cheek and made hell grant what love did seek. So that in Il Penseroso's version, hell actually does grant what love seeks. And the idea that, you, that Il Penseroso has um, that they both have, but that, that climaxes in Il Penseroso, which is the second of the paired poems, that um, love could go to hell and cause hell to weep, cause Pluto to, to um, let a tear roll down his iron cheek, that love could go to hell and cause hell to weep um, and could make hell grant what love did seek. Um, that's an idea, um, in some ways, that's Dantesque. That is an idea that there's a single principle which goes all the way from hell to heaven, all the way, that love itself can be found everywhere. <coughs> um, and again, I think that there's a kind of um, binding of humans in hell with humans in heaven when you see figures, couples, pairs, like Paolo and Francesca, and Francesco and Poverty. Um, and that binding is one of the great things about Dante. It's not, oh, those people, they're gone forever, screw them. Um, it's, no, they all belong to this infinite and ubiquitous system of love. Okay, one of the things that Dante gets explained to him, to go back to this question of free will, is the doctrine of predestination. That is, um, and there's something, I'll just say this as a, as a kind of framework for Milton so that we don't have to spend too much time on it because you can get lost in it forever. Um, but some of you will know predestination as a Calvinist term. Um, what does it mean? Yeah, you're born either um, damned or saved. Um, most people are born um, damned. A few are born, a few are the elect. Um, and they will go to heaven and everyone else will go to hell. Um, and you'll just hear all the time people talking about Calvinist predestination. The idea of predestination is way earlier than Calvin's, and it's an idea that Dante um, talks about, that Dante um, explains or has explained to him. Um, but what the idea of predestination is, is not originally that your fate is already decided at your birth but rather that some people, some very few people, um, whether after, whether baptized or not, whether after or before Christ or not, um, for reasons known to God, but for reasons that are appropriate to their own virtue, are predestined to salvation um, from the start. They're going to be saved. Everyone else has to work for it. 
So some people get buys in the great tournament of the afterlife. Um, some people get buys. Um, some people get um, get promoted into the I don't know. This isn't going to work. Um, but some people um, are predestined to heaven, but no one is predestined to hell in the original doctrine of predestination. What Calvin was arguing for is called the doctrine of double predestination. And the doctrine of double predestination is the Calvinist idea, that nothing you can do can make any difference because it's decided before you were born. Um, that um, you don't have free will either um, because um, whatever you do um, is you will do in conformity with what God has decided you will be, which is either elect and good or damned and evil. Yeah? Just um, if we were to go by, by Calvinist predestination, how are people motivated to, to do anything for that? Well, see, this is the, now we enter wilds. Um, and the answer is different people respond to it differently. Um, the wildest way of responding to it, um, which was um, there were a group of people who did do this, antinomians. Um, they were, there are different kinds of antinomians, but um, one set of antinomians in the middle of the 17th century thought, well, great, nothing I do matters. Um, so what they did was they had wild sex all the time um, because God had already decided. And, um, and uh, if they were saved, the wild sex wasn't going to stop them from being saved. And if they were damned, at least they'd get to have a little wild sex before they were damned. Um, so so um, there's, there's a hugely anti This is true. I'm not make, uh, this isn't just, oh, yeah, they did sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They didn't do r drugs and rock and roll. They didn't have it. But they did have sex, <laughs> and they did have alcohol. And that's what they did all the time. Um, so so um, they are an extreme case of not being able to motivate. Um, Standardly, the way Calvinism motivates is through anxiety. That is, the idea is if you're a good person, that's probably a decent sign that you are of the elect. And so you keep checking, am I being good? Wait a second. Um, the other day I didn't give a quarter to that beggar. Was that right or not? Uh-oh, does this mean I'm bad and I'm going to hell? Wait, there's a beggar. I'll give him a dollar. See, I am good. It should be okay. So Calvinism works um, to the extent that it that it does work, with, and it works extremely well um, to get people to um, uh, <coughs> behave as the as um, Calvin wants them to behave. It works through getting people to check all the time on how they are. It's a kind of hypochondria of the soul where people are, are worried all the time that something is a symptom of their damnation and they're always looking for ways to um, prove to themselves that they're wrong, um, that it's not a symptom of their damnation, that really it's just a zit and it'll go away. Um, it's not, not the symptom of some horrible disease. Um, so if any of you are hypochondriac, just think of this having to do with your entire soul. Um, that's how Calvinism works, through motivation of anxiety. Um, we don't have to go into these wilds, though, and, and they do get wild. We don't have to go into these wilds, though, um, because Milton was not a Calvinist. 
Milton believed in free will. Um, he's very <laughs> clear on believing in free will. Um, he, his doctrine of the freedom of the will is sufficiently clear that had he lived in Geneva or had he lived um, 50 or 60 years earlier, he might have been burnt at the stake. Um, people were burnt at the stake for um, espousing Milton's beliefs. Um, Milton, um, by the time he wrote Paradise Lost, became a believer in free will. He wrote a book called Of Christian Doctrine um, in Latin, um, and, uh, but didn't publish it. And it wasn't actually published until the 19th century. Um, the reason being that he could well have been executed as a heretic on the basis of this book. Because the other thing Milton didn't believe in was the Trinity. Um, what he believed was something called the Arian heresy. Um, it's got that name because it's quite a heresy. Um, the Arian heresy, which is that there's only one God. Milton was a monotheist, not a Trinitarian. Um, that there was one God, and that the Son and the Holy Spirit, whom he does talk about in Paradise Lost, are the first created beings, the beings whom God created first and whom he loved most as closest to him. Um, the Spirit is not even, um, the, the Holy Spirit is not even clear um, whether Milton thinks of the Holy Spirit as a separate being or not. But the Son is a separate being, and in fact so separate that um, he represents God in all his work and um, will even be thought to be God when he comes to earth and talks to Adam and Eve, but is not God and does not know what God is thinking. Um, the standard Trinitarian view, it's a hard one, but the standard Trinitarian view um, in the Nicene Creed and other, other places is that, is that you have three persons who are all God and who are not each other, but who are all linked by the fact that they're God. Um, there's an article in, uh, um, may have been a new scientist a week or two ago about... Um, a very rare case of conjoined twins, of Siamese twins, um, who actually share some of their brain. Um, they're conjoined at the forehead, and they're, they're four years old now, um, and there's evidence that they can actually think each other's thoughts um, and see through each other's eyes. And um, so that's kind of spooky, but that's kind of the Trinitarian view of God, is that the three persons of the Trinity um, <laughs> do see through each other's eyes and think each other's thoughts, um, not in a creepy way, but um, in a way which is the unification of everything, in the Dantesque way. Milton does not believe that. So it's really important to understand Paradise Lost that there are two heresies in Paradise Lost um, that, are, that are central to it, um, that Milton puts in Paradise Lost in terms of an argument rather than um, as an actual and absolute assertion, but he is pretty assertive about it, um, and these are heresies that he's even clearer about in this book that he couldn't publish for fear of execution. He was almost executed for other reasons, um, having to do with the English Revolution. Um, but um, 
He really was. Um, he came very close to execution. He was... Uh, um, so do people know about the English Revolution? No. Anyone? Can you say anything about it? Uh, yeah, I guess. It was led by Oliver Cromwell um, against was it Charles, Charles the First. And people didn't like him because he was too sympathetic to the Catholics. Um, and he also was kind of a trying to be, what's the word, or like Louis the Fourteenth. And so he wasn't popular, and they didn't want to kill him, but it ended up that they killed the king. And so for like 10, 20 years, 11 years, 11 years they had no monarchy, monarchy in England. Yeah. So in 1642, a revolution begins in England, essentially between par uh, its parliament rising up against the king. Thank God the days when, you know, a congress and a chief executive would be at odds with each other and using powerful revolutionary rhetoric to attack each other. Those days are over. Um, but back then in 1642, um, essentially a revolution, a war broke out between the forces of parliament and the, and the king. The king hated parliament. The parliament on the whole hated the king. The king wanted money. Parliament didn't want to give him money. Um, they each had loyalists, each had troops, and there was a, there was a, a, a civil war in England that lasted for seven years. Um, and at the end of the seven years, after possible um, um, compromises and various things, at the end of the seven years, um, Charles, King Charles was um, imprisoned, tried by Parliament um, in a case called the King versus the King, um, because all British cases are the king versus the defendant. So this was the king versus the king. Um, the idea being that Parliament was actually, um, the king was an embodiment of the will of Parliament. Um, that's the idea of what the king is. And so if the will of Parliament was that the king um, should be prosecuted, then the king with a capital K simply represents the will of Parliament versus the king with a small k, who's King Charles. Um, the small k king lost that um, trial and his head. Um, he was beheaded it, in the beginning of 1649. And Oliver Cromwell, who was the Speaker of Parliament, um, then essentially became the leader of, Eng of England, um, first as a commoner, but then he had himself made, um, made uh, Lord Protector, which started looking a little sketchy and decided that after he died, his son would be Lord Protector after him. Things went badly. For a while, people thought Oliver Cromwell was the one. Um, but after 11 years, they got really sick of him. He died, and Charles I's son, who'd been in exile in France, came back to England in what's called the restoration of the monarchy. So um, there was a period called the Interregnum, 1649 to 1660, and then the restoration of the monarchy with King Charles II, son of Charles I. Um, so there's a second revolution, you could say, a second coup, a second change of government. Um, that second change of government was followed by a third change of government called the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which established the British government the way we now have it. Um, but Milton was already dead when that happened, so it's not relevant to us. But, as, but what is relevant is over the course of about um, 46 years, there were three major revolutions in England. Um, and it was the third one which finally settled things as they are. You can think of France between 1789 
1817, and the death of Napoleon is going through a similar kind of period. Um, so, um, Milton was very much on the side of the revolutionaries. This is really important when you think about Satan. Um, Milton was a revolutionary. Um, he wrote in prose. Um, he wrote a lot of prose. Um, among the things that he wrote that he wrote were the defenses, two defenses of the English people, which he wrote in Latin. Um, and those two defenses were essentially he was defending England against all the European powers who were horrified that any country would kill its own monarch. They were horrified because they were monarchs. That's what made them powers. Um, they were afraid this revolution would spread. Um, and Milton wrote these very powerful polemical pieces defending the English people and explaining why the monarch had to go, why Charles had to be beheaded, how evil he was, um, and so on. Um, and um, Milton wrote those things as Oliver Cromwell's Latin secretary. That was the position that he held in Cromwell's government. The Latin secretary is the equivalent now of the Secretary of State. That is, what a Latin secretary is, is the person who engages with other powers in the language that is used for diplomacy and for international relations, namely Latin. Um, now that language is English, is the language of international relations. Uh, in the 19th century, it was French. Um, in, um, in Milton's time, it was Latin. No one's actual language but a language that all learned um, people knew. And the Latin secret secretary was more or less the equivalent of Secretary of State. So Milton was an extremely high-level person in Cromwell's government. Um, he was an extremely important political writer. Our First Amendment comes out of Milton. Um, not in those terms, but Milton wrote the first great political um, argument for freedom of the press, um, a work called Areopagitica, um, a reference to the hill in Greece where speeches were made. Um, so the Areopagitica um, is one of Milton's great prose pieces, and in it he said there cannot be prior restraint on publication. Um, public, the press has to be free. It doesn't matter if what people say is unsound or untrue. Um, you have to have freedom of the press in order to have vigorous debate in order for truth to come out. Um, it's a very powerful and stirring work, and it was extraordinarily influential um, later and eventually led to our idea of freedom of the press, to the First Amendment, um, 150 years later. Um, so Milton is a political figure was a figure, you know, not of the kind of importance of, um, of President Wilson or President Lincoln, obviously, but nevertheless of some considerable importance, you know, maybe up there um, with the writers of the Federalist Papers, at least as Federalist Papers. Um, he's important in the history of politics. Um, he's important in the history of political thought. He's one of the few people um, taught in the English department who will also be taught in the politics department. Um, well, we teach a lot of people, we teach a lot of political people, 
um, but Milton is one of the few um, few literary giants who are also really important in political theory and political history. Um, when Charles II was restored, that is the son of the old king, when he was restored, um, Milton was in trouble because he had been part of this revolutionary government, many of whose members were now imprisoned um, or worse. And um, he, partly through the intervention of influential people who admired him, he was saved, but he went into a kind of internal exile. And what did he do in exile? Well, he started writing Paradise Lost. He actually started writing it before... It's, it might be a little bit hard to say exactly when he started writing it um, because he'd been thinking about Paradise Lost from um, the time when he was in his 20s. Um, but he started writing what we have as Paradise Lost um, just before the Restoration and most of it after the Restoration. Um, and it was published um, seven years after the restoration of Charles II. Um, and it's one thing... So, so let me tell you what the major issue in Paradise Lost is, what every reader has to decide for herself, is are you, between God and Satan in Paradise Lost, are you on God's side or are you on Satan's side? Um, what the poet William Blake, do people know who he is? Songs of Innocence and of Experience. So Blake wrote a great book called Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Do people know about this? Um, which contains within it the fantastic um, passage called The Proverbs of Hell, which are about 120 proverbs of hell, and they're really wonderful proverbs. Um, some of them you will, um, you'll probably know. Um, the last one is Energy is Eternal Delight. Um, if you're Jim Morrison fans, um, the doors of perception comes from the Proverbs of Hell, which is where the doors get their name. Um, no one knows what you're talking about, Rudy Valley. Oh, well. Um, Val Kilmer, you know who he is? Yeah. So he played Jim Morrison. Ooh, in the movie. Good. Um, um, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, um, what Blake says about Milton was um, that the reason Milton wrote in chains when he wrote of heaven, but with complete freedom when he wrote of hell, is that he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. So Blake's view is that Milton was on Satan's side, although he couldn't admit it to himself. Shelley um, uh, writing a few years after Blake in the preface to his great poem, his great play-slash-poem, Prometheus Unbound, a lyric drama, as he calls it, um, says compares his hero, Prometheus, to Satan. And what he says is um, Satan is really wonderful, um, and um, the hero of Paradise Lost, but he does have some tragic flaws, which I think my Prometheus, which I think Prometheus doesn't have. Um, but he says that as a moral entity, Satan is so far superior to God in Paradise Lost as a person who stands up for his beliefs and principles against overwhelming power would be superior 
to that power which in absolute security and with no concern at all for its status would nevertheless simply persecute and punish someone who stood up for principles. Um, that's the moral superiority of Satan to God in Paradise Law. So for Shelley and for Blake, um, it was clear that Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. For Blake, Blake thought Milton didn't know it. Shelley thought Milton did know it, that Milton's whole point was that Satan was the hero of Paradise Lost. Um, so the question in Paradise Lost is, well, what side are you on? This question is still being debated, as some of you will know, um, most recently or most widespreadly. Um, as a debate between C.S. Lewis and Philip Pullman, not a debate that Lewis, except up in heaven or wherever he is, can really pay attention to now these days. Um, but Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy um, is explicitly a rewriting of Paradise Lost. Um, Pullman also did an edition of Paradise Lost, um, which I could have used for this class, but it would have been expensive. Um, and um, Pullman basically thinks C.S. Lewis, um, Lewis wrote a book called A Preface to Paradise Lost. Um, he also wrote some book about Arnia, something like, I don't know. Um, lions and witches and, 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 and chests. Yeah. Um, but he wrote a book called A Preface to Paradise Lost. And what, what, what he says in A Preface to Paradise Lost is, Milton wants you to like Satan so that you'll suddenly say, oh my God, I like Satan. I must be evil, I must repent. Um, that is that Milton is tricking you into liking Satan so that you realize that you too are evil. Um, you then realize that Satan is actually bad, you shouldn't like him despite the fact that he's um, dynamic, he's kind of the Justin Timberlake character in The Social Network, um, appealing at first, but then we realize no, he's actually bad. That's how we should feel about Satan and we should turn against him and um, be on God's side. And Philip Pullman then says, you couldn't be more wrong if you think that's what Paradise Lost is about. You're missing everything that's important about Paradise Lost. So that's the debate that continues now in fantasy literature between Pullman and Lewis, between two ideas of fantasy literature, um, with Paradise Lost as the example of the greatest piece of fantasy literature in English. Yeah. Was um, Milton Puritan? Um, well, okay, so first of all, the word Puritan means something different in England from what it means in America. Um, the answer is yes, he was part of the Puritan Revolution. Um, that is the revolution that dethroned and deheaded Charles I. It's called the Puritan <laughs> Revolution, and he was. Um, but Milton's Puritanism, most, Puritanism, most Puritans, as you know from your reading of Hawthorne, right, are... Um, extreme predestinarians, extreme Calvinists. Um, and Milton was an extreme anti-Calvinist. So it's very complicated to say that he was simply a Puritan. But at any rate, that's the issue of Paradise Lost. If you look, let's just look at the very beginning. Um, we talked about this before, but now we can return to it because we've um, now looked as we have at Dante. Um, what Milton and Dante share, among other things, and this is um, something that you should really become attuned to, having read Dante in Milton. Most readers of Milton, most critics of Milton, don't pay attention to this. 
What they share is a narrative voice, a first-person narrator, who is learning and thinking as he goes through the poem. And um, the crucial opening thing, we saw this a little bit in Homer on the first day of class, but the crucial opening word at the beginning of Paradise Lost, let's, we're, what we're going to do for five minutes is just look at the first 25 lines, um, is he announces the title of Man's First Disobedience. What's this poem going to be about? What are you writing of? I am writing of Man's First Disobedience. So what's that? The apple. The apple. Um, but not only that, and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. Um, so the disobedience and the fruit. I'm also writing about that. Um, is he? How much, how much do you think the apple is going to take, how much space do you think it's going to take up in this poem? There's not, I'll tell you in advance, there's not going to be a kind of gigantic Dante-esque apple which just gets bigger and bigger and blooms out, stem end and blossom end, as Robert Frost will put it in his great poem, Apple Picking. Um, the apple is, um, gets two or three lines. Um, so why does he talk about, in the very, why is the last word, the first line of the poem, fruit? Are, are you brooding or are you not answering? Um, okay, Julian. Just gonna say that that's the 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 the, the cause for the fall of Eden, perhaps fall from Eden, perhaps, and also that's that's um, that's the root of the whole discussion. Of, first of all, you know, we kind of build up to why uh, why did why did uh, why did Adam and Eve fall from Eden? And so the fruits, the root. Fruits, the no fruits and roots. <laughs> uh-uh. yeah, you, can, you can try that. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, it's fine. Um, what are the what are the fruits of your labor? What does that mean? Someone should be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Reward. Yeah, reward. Um, consequence. Um, the fruit of wrath is hatred. The fruit of love is peace. You can imagine some some silly proverb like that. Um, so the fruit of that forbidden tree would be what. The result, which is? Paradise lost. Yes. Yeah, so the fruit of that forbidden tree, it's not the apple that he's writing about. It's what happened because of that forbidden tree. The fruit of the fact that it was forbidden and yet they ate. Now, the reason I'm pushing that is that if you don't see immediately that the word fruit is metaphorical, and how could you? But if you don't see it immediately, what you will come to learn is, yeah, that's the important thing. That here's a word which makes sense both literally and metaphorically. But it's the metaphorical meaning that matters, not the literal meaning. No one cares about the literal fruit. The fruit only matters as a symbol, not as a piece of fruit. What, the, what this poem is going to do is, I, I thought we'd do 25 lines, we did one. What the poem is going to do is stage, among other things, what it does is it stages an argument 
between a magical view of God's relation to human beings and humans' relation to God. That magical view is kind of the Iliad's view, maybe the Odyssey's view. That is, that, that gods have magical powers. We wouldn't call them magical. We'd call them supernatural. And they produce these you know, magical fruits. You can, um, Circe can give you a drink that will turn you into a beast. And, um, and um, they have this magical food and magical shields and so on. And then, we're, then there are us humans who are, on the whole, not magical. Um, that's one way of reading supernatural power. Milton says it's the wrong way. And this is an anti-magic poem. Um, what it says is this is a poem in which what matters is, is human experience in the human mind and in human thought, and not an idea that God is an external, magical magician who can do what he wants through powers that defy um, cause and effect. Um, we will talk more about this on Tuesday. Um, we have Tuesday, and then what do we have, four days left after today? Three. Okay, so you should be at least through book four for Tuesday. No, Monday's a Thursday, but Tuesday's a Tuesday. I appreciate the Thank you. Sure. What's the last